everybody and welcome to a new episode of Evie's Korean Drama Podcast Show. My name is Evie, I'm your host, and I am a K-drama obsessive. So this is the show where I waffle on about all of the K-drama that I love. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Evie Korean Drama Podcast. There you will find extra podcast episodes and updates on what I'm watching at the moment. Also, just before I get started, please be warned that I do swear a little bit on this show when I get excited. And when I'm talking about K-drama, I always get excited. Alright, so I thank you very, very much for listening and let's get on with the K-drama show. The K-drama that I'm talking about today is Kingdom Season 2. So Kingdom was a really highly anticipated drama for me. The first season came out in 2019 and you probably already know was a bit of a juggernaut for Netflix, a very big budget, pre-produced, massive scale Korean drama and kind of a bit of a flagship um, for Netflix in terms of K-drama and collaboration with K-drama. It is also a Joseon set uh, historical drama that is quite gritty, filled with lots of political scheming. And, you know, the main character is a crown prince who's been marked as a traitor and is trying to figure it all out. And then on top of that, you throw in a shit ton of zombies. And that really makes life really fucking difficult for our main character, Lee Chung, who is played by the actor Ju Ji-hoon. So the first season, I've done a whole podcast waffling about it. So I hopefully won't talk about that too long, but it's only six episodes. And that came out at the beginning of 2019. And now in 2020, we have the second season of Kingdom, which again is only six episodes. So, you know, it doesn't really take up a lot of your time at all. So the whole show, um, I didn't realize, but now I know, is based on a webcomic. And that webcomic is called Burning Hell Shininara, I think, by the writer Kim and hee um, So I thought that was really interesting because I hadn't realized. And I have to say, so for me, if I kind of think of Kingdom as... <laughs> I guess sort of like a 12 episode drama, like, yes, there's a big cliffhanger at the end of um, episode six, but as a story, it really feels very satisfyingly finished at the end of season two. So that's the 12th. 12th episode. Um, It really feels like a proper story arc and I can really feel things wrapping up at the end of season two. Um, And then season three, I feel they're going to go off on a bit of a tangent in a very different direction. Um, which I'm totally on board for. That sounds great. So Kingdom for me, I really, really love it. Like I think it's a very interesting show because I do think what it is absolutely at heart is an action-packed 
horror drama. Like it is non-stop action and the action is big. Like it is huge scale. There are so many people running around being zombies and things are set on fire and it's just huge. Everything about it is big. Um, but on top of this sort of fast paced action horror stuff going on, there is an actual plot as well with this whole, um, you know, I guess, you know, just the normal stuff, like get rid of the current crown prince, let's try and get someone else in, all this kind of political back and forth thing. But it's so interesting to have that kind of very familiar political kind of intrigue storyline layered over this all-consuming kind of zombie apocalypse, basically. So I really, really love that. Um, I know that zombies and horror in general, it's a very personal taste thing. And I know people you know, it's going to be different for every person. But personally, I love that stuff. Um, I've mentioned it on the podcast before, you know, I really like horror, um, particularly horror with a supernatural edge, because I find that a real, I guess, a, a bit of a step out of reality. So even though I can find something very scary when I'm watching it, because it has that supernatural edge that isn't real, um, you know, I don't carry that fear over into my daily life. Like if I'm watching a horror movie about someone who likes to break it into, into houses and kill people, like that's the kind of thing that's going to make me fear for my life. And that's not really the kind of horror that I like. I don't really enjoy watching horror that kind of makes me afraid to live my life, but I really enjoy watching horror that I guess I might term as escapist. You know, it's it's a window into a make-believe world or situation where I don't have to really worry about that happening to me personally. So I can just enjoy the horror of it in terms of a story and get into that story and Particularly with Kingdom, um, you know, the zombies are very creepy and, you know, there's been so many over the years, different kind of media adaptions of zombies. And I do feel like this is very fresh and very exciting. And particularly in season two, I think they really built on the kind of the world building around the zombie law and the rules around, you know, who gets turned, how they get turned, what was the initial, you know, patient zero and why, why, what happened. And I really enjoyed kind of the careful groundwork, I suppose, of creating those rules and then sticking with them. I thought that was really cool because yes, the zombie kind of apocalypse virus thing in this drama, it evolves throughout the show and it does change, but it always feels like a natural progression and something that, you know, if this world was real and if this zombie plague was real, that could actually happen. And I, I really liked that. I really like, you know, when you take something extraordinary and unreal, but you kind of look at it through the lens of logic and you create logic that's suits that kind of unreality and you build your world around that and you use rules. They don't have to be rules that would work in our real world, but they need to still have rules. Um, otherwise, you're going to constantly be changing, you know, the magic or the zombie plague to suit your plot, which is annoying, you know. Um, so that's a real thing I think that writers sort of focus on, I suppose, if you're um, writing a book or writing a story or writing a screenplay for a drama um, that does have elements of fantasy in it. And that is, you know, just because it's fantasy doesn't mean you can do whatever the fuck you want whenever you want to. Like, it's fantasy. You're making it up 
but you need to make up the rules and then you need to work within them or, you know, expand on them. Um, so I think that's really cool. I think that from a writing perspective, um, they did really well with this um, to really expand on the myth and lore of season one and, and show us more and more throughout season two, but for it to feel like a natural progression. I thought that was really cool. Um, so I don't know what I should do, like whether I should talk about, cause it, it really is a continuation of season one. So the plot from season one really matters in season two. So I guess I should give you guys maybe a little refresh on what happened in season one. Basically we have the main character, Lee Chung, who is the crown prince played by the actor Juji Hoon. So he is, you know, his dad's the king. His dad's quite elderly. We never really see him in the drama. And um, his dad, the king, has remarried a very young, beautiful wife. And the father of this new queen is actually, you know, the main prince's big political enemy, someone who hates Lee Chung. So um, this evil minister, who's the father of this new beautiful queen, um, you know, the queen is heavily pregnant and the old king dies, basically. <laughs> and the evil minister doesn't want anyone in the world to know that the old king is dead because the crown prince has already been named and that is Lee Chung, but he's illegitimate. So the evil minister really wants to wait until his daughter has had this baby to see whether it's a boy, because if it's a boy, that boy can become the new king. And, you know, this old evil minister can become the regent, which is excellent for him and clearly what he wants. So because the king is dead, um, he goes off and he finds out about a resurrection plant. And basically he injects this weird plant into this old dead guy's forehead and the king comes back to life but he comes back to life as a mad flesh-eating monster basically who craves human flesh and so they put on this beautiful gold collar on him because he's still a king and they tie him up in his beautiful palace and tell everyone he's quite ill and don't let anyone in to see him um and meanwhile he's like you know eating a lot of people which is pretty shit um, so I quite like, I really liked even just the imagery of the idea of everyone in a country revering this king who's actually a monster wearing, you know, a collar on a chain, like it's so crazy. But what this evil minister doesn't realize is that his daughter, the new queen, isn't really pregnant. She's totally fucking faking and she hasn't let her power hungry dad know. And I really, really loved this. I loved that the queen has this agency that she... You know, women back then, as I've said before, not a lot of power. She has been absolutely used as a chess piece by her dad, moved into this position as a queen, married this really old dude, you know, having his baby. And what she's doing is making sure she has a future and keeping herself safe by pretending to be pregnant. She's going to have a boy, which she's going to, you know, find from somewhere. <laughs> oh, dear. That's a big plot point. Um, oh, I should say, uh, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Yeah. If you didn't already realize, I feel like you did already realize, um, already realize, um, but there you go. Um, definitely not shying away from spoilers here. <laughs> I don't think I ever do anyway. Um, so yeah, I, it, it's really, really cool. There's, there's a lot of different characters and even some of the main characters, you know, they have, they're not so much, I guess, involved in the political scheming. And I just, 
I, I think I just love the layers that there is this kind of, you know, intrigue plot with all these high stakes. And yet, you know, it's the point of the drama is zombies and action and thrilling action horror. That's basically the point of it. Um, so I guess what I'm going to do is probably move on. It's a bit hard to, like, I don't want to just recap season one. Cause you know, that's what my other podcast episode was mainly about. So I guess I will move on and tell you some stuff that I loved and some stuff that I kind of wish could have been a little bit better. Um, so yeah, that's what I'll do. Okay, so I'm just going to let you guys know that something very fucking stupid just happened and I said a whole bunch of stuff which got deleted and now I no longer remember what I said this time or what I said in the deleted one or what the fuck's going on. So if this review is a bit like uh, fractured and all over the shop, um, I apologize, um, but I feel like I'm confusing myself at this point. So I'm just going to do my best and um, I guess that's that's what you, you'll be listening to. <laughs> All right, so the stuff that I loved about season two of Kingdom, um, as I think I've said already, um, I loved the multi-layered storytelling. I really did. I love that there's more going on than just the zombie stuff, um, that there is this kind of high stakes political plot. I think one of my favorite things in the world in terms of stories is you create a story that has characters and plot that could be kind of transposed over a whole bunch of different settings. You know, you could set it in modern times, you could set it in a fantasy world, you could set it in space, or you could set it in Joseon times during a zombie apocalypse. And I think that's really cool. Like it really gives um, a story, like a deepness to it, I suppose. And one of the things that I really love, um, you know, when I think about stories and think about writing stories is that exa exact same kind of approach, I suppose particularly when it comes to mysteries or detective stories. Um, which is what I, you know, really wanted to do um, with my detective series, the Joseon detective series, um, when I start working on book two of that, um, which I'm going to be writing very soon and I'm very excited about, is I have this idea for a cool mystery, but I want to set it, um, you know, over a very particular time period in Joseon kingdom history um, that will hopefully give it an added layer, um, just the same as I feel like this show really has, you know, it really, it gives you a lot more to focus on and it also I guess gives you something a bit more meaty than just running away from zombies and yet all the zombie action gives you something thrilling and exciting and fast-paced to focus on um, amidst the political plotting and you know the old men talking about political plotting. Um, so I guess one of my other like totally favorite things about season two of Kingdom is the young queen. So the queen who is pretending to be pregnant. Um, she is ruthless, manipulative, young, beautiful, and scary as fuck. Like she's clearly willing to do anything. But what I really love is that her father thinks that she is completely under his thumb. And he doesn't really even think of her, I think, beyond what she can give him in terms of power. Like what, what can he use her for as a chess piece in his ultimate game of taking over Joseon and making sure it is his descendant who sits on the throne in the future. 
Like he's just using his daughter and he doesn't give a shit about her because she is a woman and she isn't a man. Um, And I really love her reaction to that is she pushes back. She keeps secrets from him. She makes her own plans. And so by pretending to like, I mean, she's not a good person, right? She's pretending to be pregnant and she has a whole bunch of pregnant women locked out, you know, in a house out the back and she's certainly treating them nice. She's feeding them lots. Um, but when they have a baby that is a girl and a lot of them are having girls instead of boys, she's, she's murdering them all. And then she's just throwing them down into a ditch basically. So she, she's pretty cruel. That is what she is. But as a character, I found her very interesting because I did find her to be someone who is cruel, but who has been driven to be what she is through her life and through her circumstances and through her experience. And she she's ruthless. She has no empathy for anybody and she will you know cut through and go to the top. Um, so I really, really liked her. I liked that so much of this season, I feel like she had a much meatier role. Um, season one, she just sort of appeared every now and then, but you didn't really get to learn very much about her. Um, so I really, really enjoyed her aspects in this season. Um, so another thing that I really, really, really loved in season two and in season one as well is the scenery and the way this show is shot. Like they have so much money and they use it so well. Everything looks amazing like there's all these sweeping shots of like you know massive valleys and open valleys and and water and cliffs and then over the over these mountains in mist you know blue light in the evening or at dawn it's just beautiful it looks so good um all the location shoots as well look amazing you know all these um folk village villages or you know traditional villages out in the countryside and um they just Everything looks really gorgeous, but at the same time, it has this dirty, real sheen to it. And as I've said a million times, history is gross. And I love that this drama reflects that reality. Um, When I'm watching it, you know, you really sink into it. It's not pretty, but it is pretty at the same time, if that makes any sense. There's also these amazing shots, um, like aerial shots. And I presume like it's obviously CGI because this place doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it looks really, really cool. And it's these aerial shots of um, the city of Hanyang, which of course is what Seoul was called back then. Um, and, you know, you see this big from the, the entry gate, you know, this is a walled city back then. And from the entry gate, there's this big, you know, open walkway up to the palace gates where the palace is and all these thatch thatch or like straw thatched roofed houses like crowding up on either side where all the peasant poor people live. And it just looks fucking amazing. Like if you are kind of, I guess, a bit of a history nerd or a Joseon nerd in general, like um, I am, I love looking at traditional Korean architecture in photos, like all the Hanok houses. Houses. I love looking at um, Hanbok, you know, the clothes. Um, I love all that stuff. You know, I literally like sit around looking at it all on Pinterest because I'm really interested in it. And I think it looks really aesthetically beautiful. And I think this drama really, really took advantage of of those, that kind of beauty, I suppose, even though, you know, they then rubbed it in dirt because it's, you know, trying to be a bit more gritty, which I loved. Um, so, yeah, it, it looks beautiful, this show. Um, Oh, there's another scene I wanted to mention that kind of highlights 
how much I feel they do think about the the way things look. So the prince, Lee Chung, who, you know, he's been marked as a traitor. He doesn't know it, but he's about to get completely usurped. So he's been marked as a traitor for trying to kill his dad, which of course we find out is true. He actually did try and do that, but that's because he is an illegitimate son and he is about to lose everything. Like he's about to lose his life through the plotting of this evil minister and his daughter, the queen. Um, so Lee Chung, you know, he's out in the provinces, he's dealing with this crazy zombie plague, but on top of that, he's trying to get back into the palace. He's trying to get back up there and he's trying to take his rightful position on the throne. And the thing that's really cool about Lee Chung is he's not doing that for power. He's not doing it because it's his and it should be his. And that's just the way it should be. Like he's not doing it because of his royal blood. Like he actually wants to be a good person. And, you know, he's seeing this mad pandemic happen and he's seeing everyone panic and he's seeing people do bad shit like nobles constantly out to save themselves and just forgetting about the people and not giving a shit about the people you know everyone out for themselves and that's not his attitude or mentality and I can only imagine that comes from being an illegitimate son. You know, he is privileged and he does have power, but at the same time, he's always been on the outside. He's always been whispered about. And I think experiencing that kind of feeling maybe gives you a little bit more perspective to think about how other people are treated because you yourself are not particularly treated very well. Um, so I really really loved all that aspect about his character. I actually thought it was really cool and developed, I think, even more in season two um, with him trying desperately to take back his rightful position as heir simply because he can manage this pandemic better than other people. And he believes that it's real compared to, you know, other people who just don't even care about it. Um, but there is this scene. So he has his right-hand man who is this loyal guard, Mu Young. And Mu Young is played by an actor whose name I don't know, but whose face I know so well. And I'm sure you will too if you've watched more than like two dramas. This is this older dude who's just like in everything. Um, I really like him. He's a very likable looking dude. Um, he's just, yeah, he's really good. Um, so he's like a loyal guard. And he's also, I guess, you know, they're friends. That's what they are. But Mu Young, the guard, has been spying on the prince. It's not exactly his fault. He's got a beloved wife who's being held hostage, who is pregnant, of course, being held hostage by the queen, who is desperate for a baby son and doesn't care who gives birth to this baby son. Um, so Mu Young has been spying and Lee Chung is aware of it. And at some point throughout season two, Mu Young totally gets you know, he gets basically hit with like a zillion different arrows. But the point of that big, long <laughs> winding around talk was this scene looks beautiful. This death scene, this tragic, awful scene looks extraordinary. It is set in um, a snowy forest of these trees that are white and ghostly. Um, I believe they're beech trees. I think Korea has like in Gangwon province, which is more north, north, what, east? Uh, I'm not really sure, but they have these um, really famous beech forests um, 
of these ghostly white beech trees um and so with the snow on the ground and these white trunked like trees and because it's winter obviously you know they don't have any leaves on them and everything just looks very surreal in a way and very beautiful and obviously Mu Young is dying and Lee Chung is fucking freaking out and very very sad about it so uh, I mean it's such a good example of you know it's it's an emotional scene um it's I guess in a lot of ways it's a slowing down point in terms of pacing because this drama is very breakneck like it it's just so much action so you know I guess this scene works on so many levels like it gives you a breather it brings emotion back in after just all this running for your life kind of stuff and it is breathtakingly beautiful in its you know own tragic kind of way so yeah scenery great in this show um one of my absolute favorite parts of season two is towards the end is probably like you know most of the last episode and all of the second last episode or something um but basically the whole plot of the show is Lee Chung trying his fucking best to get back into the palace so that he can take his rightful place on the throne and then he can fucking solve this big outbreak by making sure that the people who are locked in the cities down south can still get fed and you know making sure that he can I guess make sure that his country can survive this pandemic um and the coolest part for me was when he gets back into the palace the queen you know all her attendants are like you've got to run, like you've got to run right now away um, because the prince is coming back, the crown prince, and he's going to take everything that you have taken. But instead of running away, the queen gets dressed up in her most beautiful queenly clothes. And then she goes with her new baby son. That's not really her baby son. And she sits on the throne and she waits for Lee Chung to come in. And basically her whole mentality is she's going down with the ship and if she can't have it no one can and it's so hardcore like this woman is intense I loved her um she's completely evil everything she's doing is bad but I did love her so she's sitting there and she looks so beautiful and regal and she's just like so steely and not afraid at all but she's you know she's on edge like this is it this is her last hurrah completely but what she does to you know basically burn burn the house down around her and not allow anyone to take the throne is she lets out a fucking bunch of zombies in the palace so the last section of the drama is basically like shut all the the gates to the palace lock everyone inside make sure the infection of the zombies doesn't get out into the people in Hanyang and then just mayhem complete and utter and a lot of you know Lee Chung's kind of close dudes and people are all like we need to get the crown prince out of the fucking palace we need to leave everyone to die and Lee Chung of course is like no like I'm gonna stay here I'm gonna solve this fucking problem I'm gonna save everybody uh which is super super cool but I think the thing I like the most about you know this is the big action climactic scene at the end of the whole drama it's so exciting like just absolute mayhem terrifying zombies running every which way like complete and utter monsters and everyone covered in blood and the stakes are so high and Lee Chung could die at any moment and more so than him a lot of other characters that you really really like 
you know, you really do feel like they could die. Like I feel like Lee Chung feels like he'd probably survive, but a lot of the people around him, you really don't know and you really get to like them. Um, so yeah, I just loved this whole scene. I thought it was, you know, it's almost just worth watching the whole thing for some of the action scenes. And this one was very, very high octane, thrilling edge of your seat. Um, and also I think, on top of just it being cool, I think there was something about seeing, you know, this, this kind of zombie thing that I've seen so many times before in so many movies. But if I'm honest, more American movies, I've seen zombies like running all over America. I've seen that so many times. Um, but I've never seen a crowd of zombies going wild inside a Joseon palace, you know, that was new. <laughs> so it was really exciting. I sound a bit bloodthirsty right now, don't I? Oh my gosh. Um, I don't mean to, <laughs> I don't know why I liked it so much, but I really did. It was very exciting. Um, so one thing I forgot to say about the queen that I absolutely adored. And one thing I think I adored, adored about the drama in general is obviously the evil minister, the young queen's dad is, he's the main evil dude. Like he's the bad guy. He's the guy who started the whole, you know, plague basically. I mean, definitely he did through his plotting for power. It's all his fault. Um, he's a douche. <laughs> he's not very nice to anyone. He's not nice to his daughter. And there's a scene only like halfway through season two. Um, and you know, the evil guy, right? He always survives to the end of the show because you need someone for the final showdown. you like, you need someone for the hero to overcome at the end. But of course this show is a little bit different because I guess the zombies are the main kind of, you know, villain to overcome in the end. But when I was watching it, I didn't think of that. And this show did something really unexpected in that through all this different plotting that happens, um, a zombie gets let loose, runs straight up to the evil minister and bites his cheek. And you see it happen and you're like, oh my God, that's it. He's infected. He's going to turn into a zombie and die. Like there's nothing else that can happen. And it's such a shock because when you watch a show, you know, it's a story with a big bad villain you know the villain is going to survive to the end. And I just didn't, I didn't kind of make that connection. Oh no, in this one, the zombies are the villain. So the villain can die at any point. Um, so I was really shocked. You know, it was a big surprise and I've just ruined that surprise for you guys. So I'm really sorry about that. Um, but it was really cool. But then, uh, you know, he does miraculously through different reasons survive, reasons that do actually make sense as well, which I really like. <laughs> um, and that was kind of annoying. I was kind of like, oh, I really, I loved how surprised and shocked I felt when he was going to die, this big bad villain way before I thought he would. It was very exciting. And so he, you know, he gets nursed back to health by bloody Sobi, who's the main female lead in this, although, you know, she doesn't really have a big role. Um, and I was a bit annoyed at her for doing that because he's clearly the evil villain. Like, why the fuck is she helping him? But anyway, um, she does. And he is very furious because he finds out that his daughter has faked her pregnancy. So he storms into his daughter's, the queen's um, room, and she's holding this little baby boy that she's pretending is hers. And he, you know, he just admonishes her. Like he talks down to her. He treats her like the way that he sees her as a chess piece on his board. And she 
you know, she's so calm and collected and she just listens to it all. And then when her father is about to storm out of the room, he starts coughing up blood and you realize that the queen has poisoned him with the tea that she's given him. And suddenly it's like the whole drama again shifts and you're like, oh my gosh, she is the one with the power, um, not him at all, not not who you thought. You know, it's such an unexpected twist that I loved. I thought it was really, really cool. And I loved how ruthless she was. Um, and it really told us, I guess, a lot about their relationship and how he has most likely treated her her entire life for her to be so cold and ruthless towards her own father. So I loved that twist. I thought it was really, really well done. Um, the other thing that I love about this show is my favorite character is called Young Shin and basically he's an ex-soldier and tiger hunter played by an actor I've never seen before except in Kingdom um, called Kim Sung-kyu. Um, apparently he is starring in an upcoming, as I record this, 2020 Korean drama. I can't remember what it was called, um, but he's going to be in that this year. It's quite a big one um, with Jung Jae-jin and Chae Soo-bin, I think, as the lead. So that's interesting because I'll be watching that one. Um, so I'll see what he's like in other stuff. But I just really like his character in this, um, the tiger hunter, Young Shin, because uh, he's awesome in a fight. Like he's just the most exciting sort of action hero to watch out of everyone. He just, you know, it's more like martial arts kind of stuff and he has a gun and he's just like, excellent and exciting in terms of action. Um, and he's a good dude. Like he's, a, he's an interesting, conflicted, good dude. Um, so he's definitely my favorite character. It's interesting. I don't think like I have a whole heap to talk about. He does have a backstory and there's like a little mystery around his backstory and an earlier like outbreak of well, not an outbreak of plague, but another time that zombies have been seen in Joseon. Um, that's a mystery from, you know, like, I can't remember, three years earlier. Um, so I really loved all that stuff. And But I don't know if there's heaps that I'll, I can really say about him as a character, except that I would have liked even more than what we got. But in terms of just like when everyone's running around doing the action stuff, which, you know, a lot of this drama really circles around that, he's just a really fun character to have around. Um, and that actually brings me back. It just reminded me of another scene that was incredible to look at, like just amazing in terms of, you know, the way this drama looks. There is the opening of one episode. I'm, I'm going to say maybe it was episode three, but I could be wrong. And it has this slow motion, um, reversed slow motion shot like really long tracking shot of um, samurai invasion into Joseon and the samurai being overrun by Korean zombies. And this is part of the secret plot from three years earlier that really surrounds this mysterious reason why this um, war hero with only 500 men managed to push back 30,000 Japanese warriors during an invasion war, which is a fantasy version of the Imjin War, which really did happen in Korean history. Um, this, this shot, and it, you know, it just looks amazing. It's just absolute mayhem in the middle of a battle between samurai warriors and Korean zombies, and it's unbelievable. Like, it looks amazing. And it looks beautiful and ethereal and ghostly in its own way. But of course, you know, it's not 
beautiful in a pretty way because it's war and it's death. And I don't really know how to describe it, but it's just another example of how good this show looks. Like, it's very cool. Um, and the very last thing that I will talk about really loving in this show, which I kind of mentioned before, is the explanation behind the zombie outbreak and the plague and the way that the disease is evolving. Um, I just thought it was done really, really well. You know, at first it's this plant, the resurrection plant, and you're like, oh, okay, so it's magic. Like, just accept it. It's just magic. But this season really delves deep into into, I guess, all that kind of stuff. And it isn't magic, it's science and there's logic to it. And yeah, it's not real still, but there is a real thought being put into, um, it's not just the plant, it's actually these little bug eggs that are on the plant and these infect people. And, you know, if you infect it directly into a person and they turn into a zombie and bite you, you'll just die. But if someone consumes your flesh once you're dead, then they'll turn into a zombie that can bite people that then turn into more zombies. And that's when a plague evolves and gets out of control. So I just thought that was really clever and really thoughtful of the writers to really create such a reasoned sort of apocalypse, I suppose. (laughs) Okay, so now I just want to touch on some of the stuff that I don't want to say I didn't like it um, or didn't love it. It's just some of the stuff I thought that could have been maybe a little bit more in depth or a little bit more expanded on or whatever. Um, But certainly not like proper criticism, to be honest. Like I really, really liked this show. I liked it a lot. I think it's very, very good at what it does. So I guess the stuff for me, um, one of the things about season two that I feel like it really scales it up in terms of the zombies, like things, the action is huge and it is so thrilling, but I do feel like the zombies themselves are a little bit less creepy this season, which I think is quite interesting. And I think it probably comes down to season one, you know, it's more of a slow burn. Um, The idea is, you know, each zombie that you see bit by bit in season one is very terrifying. Like they're terrifying encounters that build and build. And by the time we get to season two, it's all about scale. It's about way too many zombies all at once coming at you. And that's what's scary. But there was this kind of slow, quiet creepiness in season one, which I think really brought out the horror element of you know, a plague like that, of something like that, if that was real, the absolute horror of it. And in season one, there were scenes where, you know, because the zombies hibernated during the day, they would all crawl underneath the houses and lie there like dead bodies. Or when they woke up, they would be like, their bones would be cracking and the way that they moved was so frightening. So I loved that creepiness of feeling like instead of just a mass of things that are going to destroy you, they were individual terrifying monsters in season one. And by the time season two rolls around, because everything is so large scale, I think of the zombies more as a mass of, you know, a wave of uh, just death coming at you instead of like individual monsters that are frightening of themselves. So I kind of felt in a way that 
the zombies themselves become less of, I don't want to say character, but maybe less of a character in season two than in season one, where I really felt like, I don't want to say there was a face to them because there wasn't, there's just loads of them, but it's still somehow it felt a little bit more individualized in a creepy way. Um, but I think that's just to do with the start of a story as opposed to you know, halfway through and towards the end of a story, because I have to say for me, you know, with season one being six episodes and season two being six episodes, it really feels like one story that has been split down the middle with a fantastic cliffhanger. Um, but it is like one story, which means that the start of season one and most of season one is slow. It's building, it's expanding. And then by the time we get to season two, it's just like high octane, action, action, bigger scale, big, big, big. And it works. It's perfect. But it does make me think of season one and two as one story, not as two separate smaller stories. My cat is crying at the door, so I need to go let her in. <laughs> Well, I let her in, so now she'll probably cry to get back out again in a second. And now I also can't remember what I was talking about. Something about zombies, right? <laughs> I guess I'll leave that one as it was. Um, I'm sure I hopefully made my point already. Um, one thing that I felt could have been like maybe just expanded on was probably Bay Duna's character, Solby. I really liked her. I do like her, but she, you know, she's just the medicine one. She's the smart medical one. She, I don't know that she had a huge lot kind of going on beyond, you know, yes, she wants to solve the problem, stop, you know, save, save the cure, fix everything. But, you know, I just, I kind of felt like there could have been a bit more like, and maybe even just a hint at her past in the way that we got with the tiger hunters character, young Shin you know, just a hint of who she was beyond her role in the zombie apocalypse of being the medical one who's trying to solve the problem. In saying that, she did have a more active role in season two than she did in season one. In season one, she, I felt like she was just put aside a lot in the action. Whereas in season two, she becomes very integral to understanding the disease, researching it and, you know, essentially solving it and figuring out how to um, save people's lives. So that was kind of cool. Like she did feel like a lot more present in the story in season two, but I, I would have liked a bit more in terms of maybe just emotion or history or whatever. Um, goodness, I've written a point here um, and I really don't know what that says. I guess I'll skip it. Uh, so the ending. So I guess my, my end thought, um, oh, that is the point was, um, it says not enough development, but I couldn't read the word development. Um, what I said about Beiduna's character Solby in terms of a bit more depth and emotion in a lot of ways, I felt like there could have been a tiny bit more of that across the board. Um, particularly with her, I think it would have been great because I feel like she got less attention than the other characters in terms of fleshing her out. But I think that a lot of the characters in this, like, and maybe it's just because Korean dramas, you know, usually are so emotionally deep. There is so, these characters are so fleshed out in who they are and their flaws and their wants and their dreams and 
there are relationships and entanglements and I know that kingdom is a mad action and there isn't a lot of time for interactions and building relationships and I don't just mean romantic I just mean you know interactions between people that give characters depth and I think that there could have been a little bit more of that. Even with Lee Chung himself, the main character, he got a little bit because of, you know, his best friend that died and there was a great sort of flashback scene to his relationship with his father and I really liked that stuff. But I think I could have done with a tiny bit more for particularly for Lee Chung, the crown prince, for Young Shin, the tiger hunter, and for Sobi, the medical lady woman. Um, I, I would have liked just just a tiny bit more. Um, so I guess that brings me to the end, my overall view of the ending. Um, so the ending of Kingdom Season 2 it really wraps up rather neatly. Like the plague gets solved. We flash forward to six months later and we kind of figure out, you know, what's happened, um, where Lee Chung has sort of passed along the kingdom to this little boy of the dead queen, um, who he knows is actually just a little commoner baby and not truly the heir to the throne at all. But of course, back then, if you had two legitimate options, for a throne it will forever create unrest and political division in your country unless one of those two people dies like that is literally the only way to get around it and Lee Chung is aware of that and he is put in a position where he has to kill a baby or <laughs> disappear from the world and pretend to be dead and of course Lee Chung's a good dude and he decides not to kill a small innocent baby um and then at the very end right we get kind of like an epilogue and it flashes forward seven fucking years into the future which is an interestingly long time we see that potentially the new little king, who's seven by this point, is a little bit more infected with a little zombie worm in his body than we initially thought, which is a great hook for season three. And then we get the main trio of Solbi, Li Tung, and Young Shin, um, you know, heading off into the countryside and going way up north because they've heard rumors of someone who is selling the resurrection plant and teaching people what to do with it. Um, which, you know, isn't great and will definitely lead to a new outbreak. So they decide to go and stop that. And then they turn up at some weird valley with loads of dead everything everywhere. And the person who turns around and looks at them is mad famous actress. Um, I'm going to have to look up her name. Sorry, <laughs> Jun Ji Hyun, um, of course, who is a really, really famous Korean actress who's in a lot of dramas, including My Love from Another Star, um, that mermaid drama, whatever that one was called, with um, Lee Min Ho before he went off to ARMY. So, you know, she's big scale. So if she's got a tiny little cameo as a weird evil woman who's selling resurrection plants to people then you know for a fact that she's got a big role in season three um so they've obviously got big plans for what season three will be um and what i think is that it's going to take a step away from what we've had already um and i don't know what it's going to do like just deal with another outbreak or deal with something new i really don't know um 
this kind of ending, I think, of Kingdom Season 2, like it does feel a little bit tacked on because you feel like everything completes very neatly and very well. And then we get kind of introduced to a new different problem. Um, but at the same time, saying that, I didn't mind it at all. And I can't wait for season three. I totally want to follow this story through and follow these characters through, even though, you know, maybe it's a good thing that I didn't get quite the fleshed outness of those characters that I wanted, because it certainly leaves me wanting more, you know, and I, I'm still going to get to see those characters next season. So hopefully they will deliver more at that point. Um, so yeah, overall, a great drama. Um, judging from season one and season two, I absolutely love it. It is a very, very cool Joseon horror show. It's excellent. Um, if that sounds like your kind of thing, I definitely, definitely recommend that you watch it um, if you don't mind a spot of horror and, you know, mad zombies every which way. So yeah, that's it from me um, on my discussion on season two of Kingdom. So now it is time for my random thing of the week. And this week I want to keep that positive again. So I kind of looked up some K-drama quotes. There's so many that I love and I've just picked one to read out to you guys. It's actually from a drama that I haven't fucking seen. So I can't talk about the K-drama or whether it's any good at all. <laughs> it's from a drama called Triangle. Anyone seen it? Please let me know if you have. Um, I have not seen it and don't know anything about it. But one of the characters in this K-drama triangle says, If you want to escape the lowest point in your life, try to love. Luck, like a jackpot, may come and find you. I thought that was really beautiful advice and really positive advice for anybody who's going through a tough time or experiencing hardship in their life, you know. Sometimes things are out of control. Sometimes you can't do anything about the stuff that is getting thrown at you. And I like the idea that a way to escape a low point in your life is to try and love. And the idea, you know, it's not saying to lean on the love that you receive from others. It's saying to put love out there, like, you know, be kind to people, be thoughtful, um, have empathy. And when you put out those kind of positive vibes into the world, you never know what could be waiting for you around the corner. I think in another way, it's a way of saying, you know, do your best to have a positive impact on the people around you and the world around you. You know, things can be shitty sometimes and it's not good to sink into that, I suppose. It's good to fight it and try and find ways to love the world and the people near you. So yeah, fighting everybody. <laughs> All right, so something that I have been loving this week, um, I have found a little bit of joy in a book. Um, I feel like I've been talking a lot about books on this podcast lately, but I guess that's my thing. So I feel like that's okay. <laughs> so I found this, it's a storybook and it's an illustrated storybook um, by an author and artist called Sean Tan. 
So Sean is spelled S H A U N and then Tan is T A N. So Sean Tan, he's a painter, but he also writes stories and he has quite a lot of picture books. But they're not really for children. I think people kind of act like they're for children or give them to kids. And I think, you know, kids can certainly read them, but they're also for adults. And they are, I don't want to say they're horror stories because they're not, but they are very, very strange tales of places and weirdness, but somehow extraordinarily beautiful and weird and his paintings are gorgeous. So the book of his I've been reading this week and really taking a lot of wonder from, I guess. Um, Some of his stories are a little bit unsettling, but they're very, very emotional. And in they're very weird and strange, but in a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me of, you know how you can watch K-dramas in all different genres. And just because a K-drama is like a melodrama and is really sad and heartbreaking and it makes you feel sad, it doesn't mean that that's a bad emotion. It's just like, it's good to have release of emotion sometimes. And I feel like that from this book that I've been reading, it just makes me feel things like feel emotions. And even though sometimes that's me feeling creeped out and a bit unsettled and a bit whatever, I think the main emotion I get, like I just feel wonder at these stories. They're so original and unique and imaginative and yes, creepy as fuck, some of them but they're beautiful in their own sort of desolate way. Um, And I've been getting a lot of comfort from that, even though, you know, it's not like they're super light or anything. Um, So the book itself is called Tales from the Inner City by Sean Tan. So Tales from the Inner City is basically a big hardback um, picture book with a lot of short stories in it um, with these extraordinary paintings to illustrate the stories and each story is as the name suggests tales from the inner city is really centered around you know a big city where there is no nature and it's just these you know big buildings and these big streets and this choked up traffic and all these people and But the stories each are about an animal living in that world and they're very surreal and strange. I I just can't even explain how strange these stories are, but they are beautiful. You know, there's this one little story, um, which is probably the most metaphorical of them. Mostly they're, they're very surreal. Like you don't even barely know what it's meant to mean. It just makes you feel something. But one of the stories is about, you know, this, this woman who's a single mom and her kid, and they've clearly, you know, it doesn't really touch on their backstory, but they've moved into a really shitty apartment in a shitty neighborhood and this big concrete jungle. And this cat's turned up and it's kept them company and made them happy. And they feel so isolated and alone, particularly the mother. And then the cat dies and it's horrifying for them. And they bury the cat, but then they go around the neighborhood and they see these posters everywhere of all these people who have lost a cat and are trying to search for where it is. And the mother realizes that the cat in all those photos, even though it has a different name under it, is their cat. So the whole neighborhood has been... I guess been soaking up joy and love from this one cat that's been going between all their households and giving them love. 
And so what this woman does who feels so isolated and alone is she puts up posters throughout the neighborhood inviting everyone who loved this cat to come and join her for a funeral, a little ceremony in her little shitty, desolate backyard in the middle of the inner city. And all these neighbors turn up, you know, some of them speak her language and some don't and everyone's very different and everyone's, you know, all different ages and they all come together and they mourn this cat and they talk about the love that this animal brought into their lives and then they find connection with each other and create a community and there's this extraordinary artwork that goes with this story and it's um, this really surreal picture of a cat swimming through a like rolling stormy black ocean and it's enormous this cat like a big boat and on its head you just see the little outline of a mother and a child and it's this idea you know that this cat was holding this woman afloat through a really really tough time and I love it I love this story you know it's not it's bittersweet I suppose you could say but it's very very moving and beautiful and you know again it's about love receiving and giving it and I, I just thought it was really stunning. So I hope that if that sounds interesting to you guys, you might check out Tales from the Inner City by Sean Tan.